I did a few things that other teams didn't do. Google, um, they work on a principle of headcount rather than of salary. And so what that means is that people inevitably hire really senior people. And I went out and I hired like three kids who were like straight out of education. The energy they bring to things, the rate mm -hmm. of learning and the enthusiasm they bring to things is just like, it creates this brilliant culture. For a lot of people at Google who are suited and stern and almost like consultants, we were just trying to get a job done on YouTube very differently. I talked to Bruce Daisley. He is the author of the Sunday Times bestseller of The Joy of Work, host of the number one business podcast, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, a workplace culture expert and an award-winning speaker. He used to be the most senior employee at Twitter outside North America. He worked at Google where he ran YouTube in the UK. I wanted to talk to him because I like the work he does and his takes on workplace culture. And also because I was interested in his journey from media and big tech to what he does now. And I really enjoyed my conversation with Bruce where he shares insights into what makes a high enjoyment and high performance work culture. And I really enjoyed hearing about his transition, writing a book and launching a podcast while having a high profile role in a fast-paced organization like Twitter. I hope you enjoy listening to it as well. And until next we meet, there be yourself. Bruce, welcome to the show. It's a real pleasure to, to have you um, on the Derby podcast. And to get started, can you describe what you do today? Yeah. Um, so for a long time, I worked at big tech companies like Twitter. I worked at YouTube, um, which is part of Google. I, I worked, did that for a sort of very long period of time. Um, and, and really now I tend to sort of work, consult, advise, discuss with firms who are just working out their approach to hybrid working. So um, largely because during the start of the pandemic, I I'd written a book previously about work and I, during the pandemic, I wrote a, I started writing a newsletter, which just aggregated the latest research on what people were saying. And through that, probably once or twice a week, firms contact me saying, oh, cool, we're, we're having this debate, discussion, disagreement at our work about what the future of our office looks like. Can you come and chat to us? So last week I was, uh, I worked with a big pharmaceutical company. I worked with a big software drinks brand and a couple of tech startups and very different themes for every organization. I think probably the thing that underpins most of it is discussions about how we use the tools available to us. And one of those tools is the office and how do, <laughs> how do we use the office technology to, to renegotiate how we do our work. Mm. As you talk, I can see your, your eyes really opening up and, and getting excited, you know, thinking about the topics that you discussed. And, and I wonder what gets you so excited about this topic? The big thing is no one really knows the answers right now. To give you the, the perfect illustration of that, you know, what you found is some of the, the biggest, most public missteps have been with organizations saying they've got the answers. Apple's solution is Monday, Tuesday, Thursday. Uh, Google solution is any three days a week. And they came out and said those things. And really interestingly, Apple implemented Slack uh, just before the pandemic. And the employees of Apple self-organized using Slack, using, there was no previous way for employees to email colleagues uh, at scale across the organization, but they used Slack to, to identify who was parents at Apple or people 
different groups, Apple women at Apple, and they they used Slack to contact each other and protest the the lack of flexibility that we're being offered. And I think you know it's not necessarily that tech firms are these exceptional businesses that we should learn anything from in fact you know to a large extent i believe the direct opposite but um it's more that they are some of the most haloed iconic famous businesses companies in the world and so we probably just pay attention to them because they're so they're responsible for putting our favorite products in our hands our favorite websites on the internet and and what you learn from those big firms is that they really have got no idea of what's going on they misjudged what their employees wanted and that is a good illustration of what's going on everywhere the thing yeah. about culture is that quite often you know broadly if we think about how culture works is that there might be three of you who go on a trip every year and you know what the culture of that group is it's sort of self-policing you can call each other out when things don't go right or you might set up a small company and when these these a minibus full of you then you know that becomes self-policing if someone's getting too ahead of themselves someone will call them out for it culture can be very self-sustaining in small groups but when you extend beyond small groups then you need to codify it to some extent and that's either codified via leadership so you know a leader represents what's acceptable and what's not acceptable it's sort of identity leadership you'd probably call that you know someone represents one of us and and uh, the uh, the president of ukraine is a good example of of identity leadership Zelensky is saying look i wouldn't ask you to do anything i'm not doing myself but this is this is all about us and that sense of us is i think a really important part of coherent and and um and tightly tightly cohesive um teams so that sense of of us and so quite often i work with organizations and they say you know we, we either really want to articulate our culture explicitly or we want to evolve our culture or we want to create make our culture be a group of loosely affiliated groups of people that maybe have all got separate cultures but are all under a central set of values and look you know these things i don't think i must have read a hundred books on culture and i don't feel i've got any of the answers any sort of hard and fast answers and it's really intriguing you know the missteps of uber right at the outset well actually these two or three things they did better than anyone in the world at the time they launched into the taxi app business there were probably four or five big startups well-funded startups from halo in london through to you know uber there was lyft there was other other startups around the world and the one thing that really made sure that uber was the app on everyone's screen is that they uh, they tried to devolve as much power down to the people doing the job as possible so you know they had leaders in different American cities when they first got going and they just hired these that they, they gave complete autonomy to people who were running American cities. Now, the previous jobs of these people is they had kind of qualified themselves as being responsible. You know, sometimes they hired people who were managers of Starbucks restaurants. Now, if you're a manager of a Starbucks restaurant, if you're a manager of somewhere, generally what you've done is you've risen up the hierarchy to get that job. And the way you've risen up the hierarchy is you've demonstrated you're not a jackass you know, you're able to open up on time, you're able to manage people and you're responsible for money. Right, okay, all pretty good qualifications. But then they gave them responsibility that you're running Atlanta or you're running uh, Detroit and they had these cities to run. And what you discovered was that because it wasn't underpinned by a strong moral code, a strong statement saying these things are off 
they're off bounds. You found that there were huge missteps along the way, but there was something. So the reason why Uber is the cab app on everyone's phone um, in half the world is because some of the stuff they did was really good. So it's like, it's really intriguing. It begs the question, um, could they have been as successful if their culture was slightly different? And that's what's so exciting about this, I think. Well, so you, uh, I read and, and heard that you got into it as you were managing the team in, in Twitter and you realized, well, actually, I seem to be doing a good job at, at it and, and the team is giving, giving good feedback. And then things maybe didn't turn out as well. And you, fe you felt like I need to get a handle on, okay, how do I make this office vibe really effective? How did you make this step from you know, being the most senior person at Twitter outside the US to actually, I'm going to be the expert on a workplace culture. Because that's a pretty big step. Yeah, but it's largely a reflection of what I said previously, really, that, you know, you sometimes, we can all recognize good culture when we feel like we're part of it. And look, mm. you know, the, the danger, the myopia of that is that you can often feel like you're part of a good culture that is good for you, but bad for other people. Best example of that is work hard, play hard cultures. So work hard, play hard cultures, you might often get a a pub culture to them or you know some of the the people in the office do you know they get they have a heavy drinking thursday night and you think ah oh, the culture is here fantastic and what you miss is that these introverts or non-drinkers or people who you know for for whatever reason don't want to be associated with drinking who aren't part of that core clique and so but for the people who are part of it they feel wow we've got a great culture here and they completely miss it i remember chatting to um uh, a Muslim woman who told me that the culture at her marketing agency was a pub culture just before the pandemic, this was, where a lot of the leaders went down the pub and had drinks with each other and the middle managers went down the pub and had drinks with each other. And they would, you know, they would regale each other with sort of jokes and laughs and they considered her to be unapproachable because she never came down. It's like, why don't you ever come down with us? We have a great laugh. But the last thing she wanted to do is stand next to a group of boorish men drinking lager you know it's just it's not appealing if you're not drinking the lager and so but if you ask the those people concerned they'd say we've got such a tightly knit culture here and they're missing the fact that it's tightly knit for some people and so you know it's the danger of these things i um you know i i interviewed a, a brilliant woman from the nhs she's sort of the person responsible for accident emergency at the whittington hospital and she um and she explained to me that, you know, like pub culture has got a, a value to it, but you know, it's, it's exclusive and it's exclusionary. And so I think look, for me, the, the really interesting thing was trying to work out if I wanted a culture where people, the objective was always, I want people to say whether they realize it today or whether they contact me in five years, but I want people to say this was their favorite ever job. That was, that was the objective. And, um, and the intention of that was, you know, could we create a meritocratic culture, I, I, I'm reluctant to use the word meritocratic, a, a progressive culture that rewarded people for, um, for good effort. And we made a, we were proud of the, for a long time, a, about four of our women who went off on maternity got promoted while they were off on maternity. And we're a small office. So, you know, it was a office of a hundred people. There aren't that many pregnant women, but, um, and so as a consequence, you know, for people to get promoted while they're on maternity, 
he overcomes one of the barriers. And he's like, so we were trying to have progressive things like that, but re very much sort of to try and to try and set ourselves the goal. We want people to say this was a high performance environment. So that was probably the critical consideration, high performance environments. So we achieved incredible things, but it was also progressive, rewarding, fun, actually, you know, we laughed a lot. And so, you know, that was always the challenge. And what you discover is that it's so easy to do, to get things wrong. I became obsessed with trying to do what no, none of us really ever do, look into the research and trying to explore what other people have discovered. And that, that became my obsession, really. Mm. So it became your, your obsession. You were still at Twitter. Uh, you're managing the business. Uh, I think you, you wrote the book, right? while still at Twitter or, or maybe did you start yeah, the podcast yeah. and you, and you started the podcast while at Twitter? Yeah. What happened was I was doing the podcast probably for a couple of years. Uh, I was doing it for about probably a year and a half. Then Penguin books got in touch with me, Pen Penguin Random House saying, you know, this has been number one business podcast. Would you be interested in turning it into a book? And look, you know, I thought, well, I'm never going to get enough like that again. If I say no to this now, I'll, I'll, no one else will come. And so, yeah, I turned, I turned it into the book and, and, uh, yeah. So it all happened while I was at Twitter. What, what made you choose to then go full on into what you're doing now? Yeah, I was, um, w when you've worked for a long time in big, uh, big companies like that, you, you often sort of wrestle with, um, you know, it's, it, it, it's like, it's a high burnout environment. You know, if you work at a Silicon Valley company, you're often working, uh, late into the night because, you know, you're sort of catching up emails with, with the US or, you know, US wakes up. And so I'd set myself a goal that I didn't want to keep doing that forever. I didn't want to sort of carry on doing it forever. And so, you know, I was, you know, I'd done 12, 12 years at these sort of very demanding organizations. So like, okay, I'd love to do something else. I set myself a deadline thinking, okay, when the, the book comes out in paperback in January, 2020, then, you know, I'll, I'll try and leave around then. And I stayed a little bit longer, you know, I stayed, I let my boss know I stayed a little bit longer than I initially planned to sort of allow a transition, but that's it really, it's, you know, to avoid feeling completely spent by that sort of all that. And I, you know, I, I said to myself, well, I'll, I'll give it a year, see if I can do anything else. I've been doing a couple of, um, other projects as well, sort of non work related projects. And, uh, I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to, I'm just going to give that a go. And it's turned out well, you know, I've, I've worked with organizations I would never have dreamed of in the course of the, the last 12 months. So that's been quite helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, I watched your, your TED talk on, on burnout and you say the environment you're, you worked in were sort of burnout prone, uh, places. Can you talk more about this? How can you recognize that you are in an environment that may be making burnout more likely in? And how do you recognize that you are, you know, getting close to that stage? Yeah, it's, it's worth sort of evaluating the symptoms of burnout. So the, bur the symptoms of burnout, I think, according to the World Health Organization, are emotional fatigue and physical exhaustion. And the first one, third one is depersonalization. And what that tends to mean is you, f you find the people around you far more annoying, far more irritating than you might imagine. And so, um, so that might be if the person who sits next to you, their tapping on their desk drives you crazy, or, you know, the, the way that someone chews gum opposite you, uh, if, if you find these things frustrating, they could well be that you're exhibiting signs of depersonalization. Um, and I think generally what you find is that 
the 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 higher the level of of uh, work intensity, that's sort of a, a description of sort of how demanding, how much time pressure, how much how much demand there is on you. The the, the greater the work intensity, the more likely you are to feel burnout. So mm-hmm. you know, the, the, probably the the most self-evident illustration of work intensity is someone working in an Amazon warehouse and they've got one minute to get between different products and to sort of put them on the production line. Um, and so, you know, very high work intensity, probably the only way to get there between, between those places is to sort of run quickly or walk quickly. And so that's high work intensity and, you know, that can or the equivalent of that can lead to burnout. So almost every organization I deal with that is saying to me, we've got burnout. They concede that they've probably got more than 20 hours a week of video meetings, uh, this very high email load, uh, maybe they are obsessive users of Slack. So any of those things can contribute to uh, just very high levels of burnout, I think. And I've heard you also talk about the impact of, you know, stress, burnout, anxiety on uh, the levels of creativity um, that you can find in the workplace. Can you talk to this? Yeah, I mean, there's a, a nice quotation from uh, Gregory Burns from Emory University in the US. And he says, the most concrete thing that neuroscience tells us is when the fear system is activated, activated exploratory systems in the brain are repressed and you know it's sort of a good illustration by necessity we're not meant to be creative when we're when we're anxious when we're fearful you know when you sort of you're anxious that you might be um your safety might be in jeopardy the the last thing you want to do is start sort of riffing on creative ideas so it's i think by necessity our fear system is deliberately op- operating in in opposition to creativity and, and look yeah, it's got a direct relevance hasn't it if, if any of us are trying to be creative and we're in a state of anxiety like you know the example i always think of is your favorite music band and you know the first album that your favorite band might put together could be this joyful and uh, un- untroubled period of creation when they were 18 19 uh, they were sort of creating something together and then when they reach the time to put either their second album or their third album, sometimes the second album is the songs left over from the first, but the third album, it's like they're just this fearful, anxious organizer, a team d- desperately trying to work out why, why, what was a success before. And actually through that, you can witness what we generally do. What, what happens when we, uh, we're in a fearful state and we're trying to be creative, we do what we did before. We copy what we did before because that seemed to be successful. And so you get artists that are incredibly derivative or incredibly sort of repetitive, or you're like, oh, I I like that album, but it's basically the same album as the one before, you know, you know, and and so it it gives you a good, a good heuristic, a good model for, for how that lack of creativity often plays a part, I think. Yeah. And, and I guess in the work that you do with companies, you will talk about how can you find the balance between well lowering burnout, but also increasing the level of creativity. Because I mean, I, I guess for most of the companies you, you work with, I mean, that's incredibly important to be able to create new solutions to, to new problems. Yeah. The really interesting thing for a lot of organizations is that they're so locked into their calendar that, you know, they don't even know what the next step is. So, you know, 
Um, mm. a, a lot of us think that we are, our whole working life is dictated by our email, but you know, actually we sort of, we operate under the tyranny of our calendars and our emails. And most of us, you know, we don't wake up in the morning thinking, okay, what do I need to create today? What do I, look, for, for most people, creativity is trying to, to do what we did last year, but in a more efficient, inventive, clever, sophisticated way. So, you know, maybe you've got a relationship with a, uh, a, a contractor or you, you supply something to someone and, you know, your objective is to, to grow your business over what you did last year. And some of the way you'll do that is making your offering more appealing to them or more smart, more intelligent. And, uh, and so consequently that's the creativity on a really sort of mundane and, and real, uh, and realistic level. And for, for a lot of organizations, they, there's not even a lot of time to do that because they, they have 20 hours a week of meetings. They have so much digital connectivity that they, they've lost sight of where the creativity is meant to live. And so I think that's one of the challenges for a lot of organizations, you know, they're often they, they kind of know what they want to do, but they have got no notion for how they want to do it. Mm. The reason why so many people at the moment are fixated with the idea of middle managers and managers becoming the, the secret weapon is that, you know, broadly every organization's going to about the same solutions, you know, same strategic outcome. They're, they're going to a hybrid solution, which is either Monday, Tuesday, Thursday in the office or Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday in the office, almost ex without exception. And so if you want to do something better than your competitions, more inventive than your competition, the question is going to be, well, where's, where's your point of differentiation? Where's your disagreement with others? And to, to a large extent, that's going to be based on, you know, can you get middle managers who are going to liberate their team, you know, enable their team to, to um to be more productive use their time more effectively i'd love to you know go back in time with your story and and hear from you how did you get to where you are i read that you were uh brought up in birmingham um in a council estate that you worked hard uh in fast food restaurants can you take tell a little bit about what it was like to try and get a footing into the workplace for you? I, I, I'm sort of strongly the, of the opinion that when you've had good luck and good fortune, you should, um, you should call that out because, because I was just, I was just lucky. I was in the right place at the right time. And, and albeit that that wasn't from my background, you know, I was just, I, you shouldn't necessarily deduce any route to success through anything that I did. I was in a media career when I was working in magazines and radio later in my career, in, in the middle of my career, early in my career. And then organizations like Google were looking to hire people because they were growing fast. I joined Google when it was 10,000 people rather than 200,000 people. And so that gives you some advantages because, and I joined just after they bought YouTube and I put my hand up and said, I'd love to work on YouTube. So all of those things are accidents of incredible good fortune. Happy to sort of call that out. The common thread that runs through most of what I did is that I've always like, I had a really interest, keen interest in understanding like the dynamics of people and the, and how different organization teams work. And so whether that was when I first did bar work, when I was sort of 16, 17, glass collector first and then, and then a barman. But when, it, when I first did that work, um, 
I, I sort of knew there were some places you went to work and you think well, we're going to have some fun tonight. And there's other places where you think tonight's going to be a really long night. Or actually I worked in fast food restaurants at the age of 16. And it's exactly the same. Like you can, you can tell. And it doesn't just for me come down to like the dynamics of, you know, the, yes, it is slightly people related. If like there's certain people you think oh, I'm going to have fun with them. They've got a, a good sense of uh, fun, playfulness. It's not just that. It's like, you know, sometimes these, these some places that are just better than others. So that became like a really strong curiosity. And through everything I've done, really, you know, I I've, was fortunate to work in a couple of organizations where there were leaders who were interested in those things, definitely when I was starting my career. And so later, when I went to organizations like Google, which really aren't interested in those things, um, it was like a point of difference. You know, people would say, walk past my team and say, you know, they, they seem they seem like they're having a good laugh. They seem like they're having a good laugh compared to some of the other teams. And, you know, and I did a few things that other teams didn't do. Google, um, they work on a principle of headcount rather than of salary. It means what, what that specifically means is that if you're given the opportunity to hire people, um, you're not given a salary budget, you're given a number of people you're allowed to hire. And so what that means is that people inevitably hire really senior people. So, you know, if you're allowed to hire six people for your team, you know, they would go out and hire six managing directors. And, uh, and I went out and I hired like three, three kids. I think two had a degree, one didn't have a degree, but um, three kids who were like straight out of education. And uh, because I tell you what, the energy they bring to things, the rate mm -hmm. of learning and the enthusiasm they bring to things is just like, it creates this brilliant culture. And so, you know, and we used to have music playing, we used to have, you know, just like, um, just a very different dynamic. So you can imagine this sort of a lot of people at Google who are suited and stern and sort of almost like look like consultants. And then my team who looked like they would just stumbled out of student union bar. And it just like created a slightly different dynamic, I think. Um, and so, you know, that, that, that was, uh, that was like, you know, because we were just trying to get a job done on YouTube very differently. So, look, I think that all comes down. The central core of that is like an interest in the connection between individuals, the net connection between groups and and how how effective teams are motivated. Really, that's my, like my constant underpinning obsession. Yeah, but I'm also hearing, you know, the desire to have fun while working. Right. I mean, when you talk about being a barman and, and, you know, having fun that night, maybe working hard, but actually having a good time at the same time. There were jobs that I did that you simply could not have fun, you know, working in fast food. If you got, if you were, if you were doing food prep, you could actually have a laugh because you're chatting to, you know, some make burger makeup or whatever. You can actually have a laugh because you're chatting to each other. It's quite, quite an adrenalized environment. You can have a laugh with each other. If you're wiping the tables down and clearing and sort of and and uh, and clearing up, you can't have a laugh. And you know the the ways you pass time is you count pop songs on the install radio, or you I, I used to count pop songs, or you know like don't look at your watch for an hour, don't look at your watch for an hour, don't look at your watch for an hour. Then you look at your watch like ah, oh, only forty minutes have gone, and the whole day would drag. And so it was just like resolute to me. Okay, I, I don't want to. I don't want to end up doing something specifically like that. Mm. So, you know, just having fun was one way to get out of that cycle, I think.
in the research that you've sifted through, what's the relationship between, you know, having fun at work and high performance? There's some good research. So, so uh, there's a woman, uh, wonderful American psychologist who passed away in February this year called Sigal Barside. And, and what she was intent on doing is she was intent on following high-performing teams to understand the things that characterize them. And what you found is that whether it's firefighters, whether it's, whether it's engineers, whether it's, um, in her case, she looked at cricketers as well. But, you know, when you look at teams, when there's a strong sense of personal, almost affection, she calls it companionate love. When, they, when there's a strong sense of affiliation that runs through them, they are not only higher performing, they're, they're more accountable. They are, um, you know, if you, if you get it right, they are more focused on results. Look, all these things are about, about trying to engineer them so that these incentives for that team to, to be high performing together. And, you know, within that, they need to know that there's accountability. So, you know, if you've got poorly motivated team who are all good friends with each other, I guess the classic image that we might have of that is that a group of people loafing around because they've got disdain for the boss, they're not working that hard. Now, of course, that's, there's a fundamental question about motivation and management there. But what Sigal Barside said is she said, if you've got a group of people who are very focused on the job in hand, have got a strong sense of companionate love, sort of affiliation with each other, they can be highly effective. And, you know, the classic, probably simple examples of that is that bands of brothers, you know, combat soldiers or firefighters, people who have got a strong connection with each other are going to go out of their way to look after each other and go out of their way to, to make sure they're elite performing. And so that's it. You know, it's really interesting when you do, as a result of that, chat to organizations. So I've been inside fire services and I've chatted to firefighters. I asked one firefighter um you know at, about humor in the job and how their relationship with laughter and he said look you know we laugh all day and it's such an important vehicle to to making us feel connected to each other but also dealing with things he said he said to me it's like an interesting coping mechanism but um he said to me i said do you tell your partner what you laugh about and he said if i told my my, my partner the things we do uh, she would be horrified. Now, look, you know, that's coping. He specifically said, you know, quite often they're having to go into really macabre situations and humor is one of their coping mechanisms. Now, of course, it doesn't play well to the outside world, but it's the way that they they sort of build strong protective connection between them, themselves to, to stay grounded in the job. And there's really interesting evidence that firefighters or police officers, for example, who were present at 9-11, their sense of connection with each other, their sense of us-ness, their we-ness, their sort of connection with each other was protective against them suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. In fact, you know, really interestingly, if you look into the research of PTSD, uh, the bigger predictor of how bad PTSD you have is not the extent of the trauma they experience, but it's the sense of social support you have afterwards. So it's why, you know, a lot of people who study adverse childhood experiences say the most important thing in, in adverse childhood experiences is parental buffering. Because if your parents can be around you, protective and, and sort of help you cope with whatever you've experienced, the more protective your parents are, the, the less uh, the experience of trauma is afterwards. So it's like really interesting sort of to, to look into that and explore that, I think, because it's just a, re a reminder that 
the more we feel togetherness with people around us, the more protective it is of us. Yeah. And that makes me curious about then the second book you're, you're writing, right? Fortitude, um, which I think you described as being on identity and resilience. Uh, and I guess that sense of connections with other people is a big part or contributor to resilience. I, I wonder what else have you found if, if you're willing to share? Yeah, it's a book called Fortitude. It's out in August. It's about how we can be resilient. And the, the danger of the word resilient is that, it's, that it's so overused and it's so, I think, misused. So, you know, I, when I told a friend of mine a year ago that I was writing a book on resilience, she said, I'm so fed up of hearing about resilience because my firm sent me on a resilience training. I don't feel any more resilient. And now, because I've been on the training, I don't tell them that I don't feel resilient because they'll, they'll be like, have you been on the training? Okay. You've been on the training. You're still not resilient. It's a problem with you. And that's what you often find. And, you know, so the book is firstly an exploration into some of the models of resilience that we're given. And, you know, these resilient adjacent concepts like growth mindset. Growth mindset is like you teach someone how to deal with setbacks and they'll be better. Or, you know, grit, this whole load of work in the US about grit, which is like, you know, this, this undying determination that marks out success in individuals but you know you see this everywhere like the british government trade body recommends that organizations train for growth mindset and so you look into all these things and you know i guess the, the critical thing for me is that the research for most of these big glossy high concept ideas isn't very good so you know growth mindset the i could i could list you 20 peer-reviewed papers that say that growth mindset doesn't work and so then it becomes this like charming fairy story, which is like, okay, we teach people that if they try hard, it's, you know, more important than thinking they're gifted. It's a lovely, charming fairy story. It, um, and maybe, you know, we should teach it because it's just a charming thing to teach, but it, it sort of brings us into areas where if we're teaching this version of resilience and this version of bouncing back that isn't demonstrably true, isn't there a danger to that? Isn't there like a danger that will leave people feeling exposed? And look, you know, so the whole book is a journey into firstly, the things we're told about resilience, the, the resilience industry, really. Um, and then secondly, how any of us actually in truth can be resilient. And look, you know, I've given plenty of spoilers along the way. Resilience really is a collective strength, not an individual strength. Resilience is the people of Ukraine feeling a sense of undying enduring connectedness feeling like okay well things are bad right now but we've got each other and you know what you find throughout the studies of resilience is that the more groups someone is connected to the more they identify themselves as being part of groups the more they feel a sense of us uh the more likely they are to feel resilient and you know that's unfortunately one of the things that employers don't tell you so when employers send you on resilience courses if they said, look, you know, you should be trying to forging connections with maybe like-minded colleagues or people who share your, um, your background or your perspective on life. Well, there's, there's plenty of reasons why organizations don't want to do that because it's sort of labor force organization in, to some extent. So, you know, far better to tell people, here's how you need to feel resilient and here's what you can do to do it, even if it doesn't work. So it's all related to those things, really. Like it's, it's far more uplifting than that makes it sound. 
Yeah, I mean, and as as you were talking, you know, I was wondering about resilience and and the importance of uh, your sense of self worth um, and how that relates actually to your fear of being rejected by the group and and therefore the fact that there is a link with what you're you're, you're saying here, which is well, you need to feel like you belong. That there is a sense of weeness mm. to be resilient, um, and and I wonder. I mean, we talked a little bit about this, but I wonder as an individual, what can you do? Because that sense of weakness can depend on others, right? So it's maybe something that you don't control. You may have some influence over it, but very little control in some cases. And I wonder what can you do as an individual to, well, I guess, grow your resilience when you have a little control on that sense of of weakness. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, this sense of social identity, social connection, does depend on it feeling authentic to you. There's no point me suddenly associating with a group of rugby fans and hanging around with them all the time when, you know, I've got no connection with rugby, no interest in rugby and, and no common currency to talk to these, these people. And, and so when a group feels authentic, it doesn't work. Um, but, you know, like you say, you might join an organization and the organization feels tightly bound about, around certain themes and actually... I just don't feel connected to them in the same way, or I, they, they, it doesn't feel like I'm being welcomed into their circle. These things can be a barrier, and you know, finding a way to to make people feel a sense of belonging is really critical. It's one of the things you discover. A sense of shared identity requires everyone to firstly understand their own personal identity, mm. and and so as a consequence, see it reflected back to them. So, I was really interested during the pandemic. I chatted to a few organisations who'd hired community managers and for their organizations, for their teams. You know, I saw, in fact, I saw my old employer, Twitter has hired a, a head of remote working. And, you know, like I was really interested in like, these new jobs that are coming along, specifically this one, community managers. I was really interested in what the brief would be, what they would do. And one of these community managers told me, look, first thing is, he's not trying to create a single community that exists across the whole organization, but more identify specific identity communities that might exist. Mm. So that might be runners at this organization or mums at this organization or uh, gay employees at this organization and actually giving them some connection to people who share specifics of identity to them generally serves to make us feel like, okay, my identity is reflected in this organization. So I think those themes of identity are, are really critical for understanding where we get our strength from, understanding how we can, we have this resource we can draw upon. And probably it's a two-stage process. You're understanding those things in yourself and then reflecting, understanding that those things are being reflected in the people around you. Mm. It really sounds like creating those micro or thematic communities just helps create lots of different ways to feel included and to belong to a group and therefore promoting that sense of resilience. Well, before um, we, we wrap up, I'd love to ask you a few, few questions that I ask uh, all my guests. What's been most rewarding on your journey? Yeah, when I worked in an office, the thing I loved the most was laughing every day. And it was a big judge for me of, you know, if I laughed every day, there was a good sign that things were going well. And, you know, um, I would hope that the... I would hope that the colleagues I work with would say the same. You know, like, it's very easy if you're 
senior person to feel like you're laughing your head off all day. I bet, I bet, you know, Putin doesn't laugh a lot, but uh, I was going to say Putin laughs a lot, but he probably doesn't. Um, and uh, but you know, it was a big thing for me to sort of feel like that was a safe and and trusted environment. People generally only laugh with people they trust uh, and people they like. Interestingly, so um, so you know th that was a big thing for me. I look up and immensely fortunate that. My objective when I first left university was I thought, okay, I'll, I'll apply for something that appeals to my passions and interests. And that was working in pop music or the music industry or records or whatever. And uh, thankfully, I, I, um, thankfully, I failed my driving test, which was the, the thing that was going to get me a, the job as the postboy of Virgin Records. And then the record industry had the worst 20 years in its history. So maybe all of that was good fortune that, you know, I was fortunate that I didn't go into to that area. Um, no, I've just been, I've just been very fortunate, which is why, you know, I try to reply to all the LinkedIn's I get from people who are looking for help and advice, or I try and be sort of kind hearted and reciprocate. So like each week I got, um, I got one today, each week podcast listeners, from my podcast, uh, get in touch with me and say things to me. And I try to sort of, you know, as much as I can respond to every single message I get, you know, it's, it's quite a nice way to sort of, mm. uh, pay, pay back a bit. That's beautiful. And what's been most challenging? Yeah. I mean, look, you know, um, I think, you know, difficult people are always the most challenging part and, you know, the, one of the biggest problems of anyone in any organization is new bosses and bad bosses. And, you know, uh, I think managing, managing organizational change is one challenge, but ma managing people change is far harder. And so, you know, like navigating those things. So that's it. Um, definitely to stay eight years in an organization like Twitter, you know, by the time I left, most people had changed two or three times, you know, um, yeah. I was down to like the top 1% of people who'd been there at the organization. So, you know, those things, managing people changes is always the hardest part of any job. And, and today who inspires you the most? My inspiration comes from sort of reading writers and researchers. So, you know, right now I'm sort of very fixated in trying to understand the, the way that people are sort of developing culture. So, you know, look, the people I've been most inspired with who I spoke to on my podcast, probably is a woman called Frances Fry, who's a workplace culture consultant who works with some of the biggest companies in the world. But, you know, I'm inspired when she walks into a room and she deals with a problem organization. What's the question she asks? What is, what's the action she, and she, you know, that learning that she's got is inspirational. I, I, I'm always blown away that I get to talk to someone who's you know, gone into Uber to fix it, gone into WeWork to fix it, you know, chatted to the Travis Kalanick, chat, chatted to the, the, the leaders of all of these big organizations. Like, you know, I can, we can all learn a lot from people like that, but yeah, most definitely. Um, that's my inspiration really. Very cool. Thanks for sharing. Where can people find you online? Yeah. Most of my stuff's on my website, which is eat, sleep, work, repeat. I've done about 140 episodes of a podcast there. I do a weekly newsletter that's probably gone out a hundred times. So you'll find that there. And yeah, so all of the stuff's there really. Yeah. And for the people who are listening, I mean, I, I mostly, I, I've been listening to your podcast. I've been reading your newsletter and, and it's, it's great content. Um, so I, I really, um, encourage people to have a look for those who have any interest in the workplace culture. 
that there is a really different perspective on things and, and real questions, uh, practical questions, uh, most often answered with obviously the caveat, as you said, that you never figure out how culture works and you, you, you're still grappling with uh, those questions. So, so great. Thanks for, for being so, here, Bruce. It was a real pleasure. You. Yeah, my pleasure to chat to you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Derby podcast. I hope you got inspired to follow your mission with passion. If you liked this episode, please subscribe. I would also really appreciate it if you can leave a review on your podcast platform. It makes a huge difference and it will help others get inspired by these stories too. Till next time, Derby yourself.